The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. In your copy of God's Word to Romans 8, beginning in verse 12, we're continuing this series that we started a few weeks ago, our summer series, on the greatest chapter. And uh, what we've seen so far, this greatest chapter has been taking us through some of the greatest realities of our faith. Uh, Romans 8 began with that great reality that we've been set free from our sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord for that, right? Great reality. And he led us then, and because we've been set free, now God has made his dwelling in us. We are indwelt by his spirit that enables us to live differently. And today it takes us into the great reality of being adopted into God's family. And in each of these realities, we've seen the, uh, the roles and the responsibility of each member of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and the no less is true today, even in this concept we call our adoption, where every son and daughter gains certain privileges as a part of being in the family. Now, even as you think of your own family, as a son or a daughter, you have gained and are now hopefully are about to be passing on those skills and character traits and genetics and resources, both good and bad, uh, from the family that we inherited. Maybe are just inherent to who we are or inherent to the way that uh, you are in your family. See, growing up for myself as a Cushman in Belmont, Wisconsin, had a reputation and a responsibility. My great-granddad Cletus was the mayor of Belmont for decades. Did so with honor and distinction, so much so that they named a street after him. Now, it's not like Main Street or anything. It's actually like the street behind all the bars. But uh, that's Cushman Drive in Belmont, and you can drive down it. My granddad and my dad then in the 70s started a greenhouse business and created a legacy, a reputation of Cushman's that uh, has a legacy of hard work and honesty and taking risks and creating beauty. It was the legacy into which I was born. You maybe, as you think of your own legacy, your own traditions, you uh, have your own way of thinking about it. Maybe it wasn't so positive. Imagine being born into a legacy not like this. Maybe you don't have to imagine because you're like, well, that's my reality, or a, a, a legacy, an inheritance that had nothing. Actually, maybe uh, it was an inheritance of great evil or wickedness. Spiritually speaking, we have an inheritance, a legacy uh, as well that has been passed to every human being born to this earth, an inheritance that comes from Adam. Legacy that passed to us uh, sin and corruption and death, where we were slaves and mastered by our sin, where we were born into being enemies of God. But God. Words that we love. But God in His great mercy chose us out of that inheritance and adopts us into His family, totally changing our life, totally changing the trajectory in which our life takes. What we were once powerless to do, pleasing God, where we were once utterly helpless and hopeless, now all of that has changed. So look at your Bibles 
And let's see and read together here. I'll read it and you can follow along just what this change then looks like. Listen in Romans 8, beginning in verse 12, concluding in verse 17, say this, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that way that we may also be glorified with Him. This is God's Word for God's people. The center point of these verses, the nail of this text, the hub upon which everything else revolves in these words are, is this. Being adopted into God's family has the greatest privileges. If you're taking notes today, write that down. Maybe you want to even just write it in the margin of your Bible there. You can cross out the little header uh, in it, or you can leave it and write it next to it. But write, put, put this down so you don't forget it. Being adopted into God's family has the greatest privileges. And, you know, before we proceed on and what, and taking apart this text and understanding the, what these great privileges are, some cultural context on adoption, I think, will be helpful. For we hear the word adop adoption, and we uh, automatically just think of our own context, right? And what we think of today is, uh, uh, you know, of, of fostering and adopting uh, those who, through CPS and the foster system and how all that happens in private adoptions and all these things, which is really good. And let me just make a plug. Uh, it will be the great blessing of your life should uh, you uh, d uh, do that. Should you open your home to foster kids and potentially adopt them and to uh, pass on the great joy and privileges and the legacy and inheritance of your family, whether that's for a short time or for the length of their lives? We think of that. Let me compel you to do so. We have families in our church that do that or have done that and will we'll tell you all the, the good, the bad, and the ugly and the joys and the hardships of it. But even though we think this, and this is good, and I'm compelling you to do so, some cultural context of what adoption looked like in those days, I think, will be helpful. So let me just read a quote here as Tim Keller will describe it for us here. This is from his, uh, his, his uh, commentary, Romans for You, and he says this, Adoption was a much more customary legal procedure in Roman society than it was in the Hebrew or Near Eastern culture. Paul, as a Roman citizen, would have been familiar with it. Adoption usually occurred when a wealthy adult had no heir for his estate. He would then adopt someone as heir. It could be a child, a youth, or even an adult. In the moment adoption occurred, several things were immediately true of the new son. First, his old debts and legal obligations were paid. Second, he got a new name and was instantly heir of all that the father had. Third, his new father became instantly liable for all his actions, his debts, crimes, etc. But fourth, the new son also had a new obligation to honor and please his father. 
And all of this lies behind the passage that I just read and is the focus of our attention today. See, everything, that's end quote, everything that uh, uh, was true about this new adopted son would radically change from his identity into his, into his future and to how he lived his life in between. And so as we come to the text this morning, uh, we've uh, made this claim here that being adopted into God's family has the greatest of privileges. But it just begs the question, well, what's so great then about this adoption? Well, that's exactly what the text is bringing to light for us. It does have some privileges. And I know, even here, just a note, I know the word privilege today has some connotations that maybe are negative and all that. But let me just say, when it comes to being in God's family, these privileges are great and available to all. Because of what Christ has done, there is nothing that would preclude anyone from experiencing the joy of following Him. And so what's so great about this? Well, here's the first one. If you're taking notes, it is this, that the Spirit equips us to kill our sin. Being adopted into family now comes with some outfitting, with some equipping, with being given some new tools, some new skills, some new clothing, some new way of living, and namely to kill our sin. Verses begin there with some familial language, and then it gets to some wartime language here. We are brothers and sisters engaged in a battle. And just a note about this, like look there at uh, verse 12, it says, So then, brothers, it probably has a little indicator, and at the bottom it says brothers and sisters, and this is true and right and good for us to understand. Even though this text will use, here's just kind of a side note, even though this text is using masculine language like brothers to talk about siblings or brothers and sisters, and sons to talk about children, it includes both sons and daughters. It's just being true to the text of using the masculine form that includes all children here. And it's not because there's any devaluing or anything like that. It's just the way the words work. And this is true in all things. You know, there's masculine and feminine language that, uh, that, that it captures both. The same way, like in uh, our relationship to Christ, what are we as the church? We are called, are we the groom or are we the bride? With the bride. It's a feminine language. And so we as men, we don't have to be, you know, like we, we don't have to worry about that or be like, oh, weird, we're going to wear a white dress and all this. It's like, no, no. Someone once asked me, a girl asked me years ago this, she's like, are you weirded out that you're like called the bride of Christ? And I've never been asked that before, but my answer's like, no, like that's actually cool, right? The spiritual connection there is that we are united to Christ. And so, yeah, he's my head and it's awesome, all right? Gender-specific language isn't a reason to throw out the Bible. But we are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? This familial language, and now as brothers and sisters, what does it go to say? What's the connection there? Well, he's connecting us to verses 9 through 11, what we saw last week, the great truth that we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He, God himself, lives in us, and that brings with it some new obligations, then yes, obligations about how we are to live, or specifically how we're to fight sin. So he says we are debtors, or we're obligated to do something, but it is not to the flesh, right? We saw that last week. The week before, like it's been cut off, it's now dead to our flesh or our sinful nature is no longer our master. And that's great news, is it not? Yes, it is the best of news. And now we have no more obligation to say no or to say yes to uh, sin and temptation when it arrives. We've been set free from that, for we already know where it takes us. What is the end of sin, the wages of sin, the payout for living according to our sin leads to what? Eternal death, separation from God. 
But now, because we're in God's family, we've been given uh, the Holy Spirit to put to death now the deeds of the body. That will then lead to life. Even though our, the sin has been killed, there's no longer a master, it remains here. And so now we have the help of the Holy Spirit to continue to put it to death, this violent, bloody language of uh, living the Christian life. John Owen, in his uh, famous book, historical book, John Owen was a Puritan, uh, wrote some 400 years ago, and he said this, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So you're on the screen, write that down. It's uh, such a good uh, uh, understanding of how we live this life. You can write it in the margins of your Bible if you want. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. You know... Uh, a few years ago, as I was thinking on this passage here, I was visiting with my, uh, my in-laws. My father-in-law is a great storyteller. He has lots of stories about his childhood dog, a boxer named Hobo. Handsome Hobo. Interesting, fun fact here, my father-in-law is from the same small town that John Rhodes, a worship guy on our staff here at church, is from a little rural town on the banks of the Chattahoochee of eastern Alabama called Phoenix City. How, how random is that, right? John, my father-in-law from there. But a while back, here's a picture of not my father-in-law, but his dad, Pop Rogers, and uh, Tom's, my father-in-law's Tom, but it's his older brother, John, and there's Hobo, the boxer. Actually, last time I was with him, he showed me this picture. I was like, this is great. But it, what happened in the conversation, we were talking about uh, uh, dog training techniques and the changing times of dog ownership and what life was like back in like the 60s with dogs and how it's totally changed now and, and, and all that. And he had, a, he had this great story uh, from the childhood. And it went something like this. You, I may have told you this. You may have read it because I've, I've shared this often. But when Tom, my father-in-law, was about 10 years old, uh, they had this dog, Hobo, and in those days, like, dog uh, owners just let their dogs run loose. Did you, uh, some of you, when you grew up, did your dog just kind of run loose? You didn't have a collar or nothing. They just kind of ran around town. There were no kennels, and they, they would just do whatever they want, and they, but they would always come home because they knew where the food was, they knew where the water was, and they knew that they would be loved upon their return. And Strangely enough, Tom's uh, family even let Hobo come in the house, which wasn't always the case then. And oftentimes, Hobo would be gone for a day or two, but he would always come home until one day when Tom was 10, this, uh, this new strange female dog came into town and came into the neighborhood, and she was in heat. This then caught the attention, of course, of all the other male neighborhood dogs in the, that were running loose. Tom and his siblings, they affectionately called this strange new female dog Hobo's wife. Imagine what was going on. And after uh, Hobo's wife came around, one time Hobo disappeared for weeks. He, 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 they, they didn't see him. And so one morning, Tom's dad, Pop Rogers, who's pictured here, uh, tasked Tom and older brother John here with going to find Hobo. And so they searched high and low. But what John took was his twenty-two rifle. You know, it's just a different day and age, right? 10 and 12-year-olds walking around town with, you know, 22s. And they searched high and low, and eventually they found Hobo in this pack of dogs. And their dog, Hobo, who looked strong and beautiful here, was just emaciated with battle scars, cuts and bruises, and was bloody from, from battle. He was killing himself, literally killing himself, being away from home. 
though bloodied and starved and weary as he was, he would refuse. He would not come home with the boys and leave the pack. The wise beyond his years, older brother John took that twenty-two and shot Hobo's wife. sending the rest of the dogs into a canine frenzy, obviously, howling and yelping at their great loss. But once the mortification of the problem took place, the boys were then able to drag their beloved hobo back home to the safety and security and provision and the love that was offered in their family. Why do I share this story? Because I'm advocating for like kids walking around with guns and shooting dogs and all this stuff. But it's a poignant illustration of the, the lengths that we must go to, our obligation to be killing sin in our life. And I think you can see the parallel. As children of God, we're indwelled by His Holy Spirit. Therefore, we have this obligation as Christians to be killing the sin that remains in our flesh, that wages war against us, that drags us away from the love and the provision that, is, uh, that, that comes with living in God's family, that leads us then to lesser things and eventually then to our death. See, Hobo had a loving home. He had that provided for all his needs. He had uh, full security, no fear of being cast out. He was well fed. He was well sheltered. He had uh, several kids. Tom's like one of six or seven kids, and they had many to play with. And yet, temptation arose, and he forgot who he was and what he had, and off he went. Had he stayed with that pack of dogs, most likely it would have ended in his death. And those extreme measures had to be taken to eradicate the sin and the temptation so that he could return to the place where he was left. Begs the question, is there sin that needs to be killed in your life? Don't, don't think that just like sheer willpower will keep you from it. I won't give in this time. I won't do that. You know, if I just, uh, if I just do this. Don't, don't think that just like uh, sitting around waiting for like some supernatural, miraculous intervention to lead you out of it will happen. No, it's by the Spirit indwelling us, the Spirit in us that we put to death, that we are putting to death the deeds of the body. Because the Spirit equips us to do so. That's what he's getting at here. If you, by this, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live great privilege of being in the family. But it leads us to the question, well then, well, how then does the Spirit do this? It's not by our sheer willpower, and it's not just like waiting around for some supernatural, miraculous uh, deliverance from it. How then does the Spirit equip us to put our sin to death? Well, it first happens with, He gives us the sword of the Spirit. How does he do it? With the sword of the Spirit, through word and prayer. In Ephesians 6, in that great passage that we love on, the, uh, on, on spiritual warfare and God's outfitting of us to, uh, to resist temptation and to fight evil, he says that we have the sword of the Spirit. It's on the screen here. Just look at it with me here. And he take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. What is that? Which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. How does the Spirit equip us? Well, remember the passage we saw last week as Jesus said, the Spirit of truth is going to come. He will remind you of what I said. He will convict you of sin. And we fight back temptation. We fight back our sin. We put it to death with the sword of the Spirit that we hold right here the word and through praying and how do we do it with others we by uh, help others uh, fight against our 
sin, as we pray for them, as we fight it back with Scripture. You're thinking, well, this is, this is too basic. What are, what are you talking about here? Like, this doesn't work for anybody. Well, it worked for Jesus. Did you know that? It worked for, for Christ. This is how he fought temptation and why he, how he lived his life. Yes, he was God and all that. You're like, that's like cheating, right? No. He, like a human, was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. And we get, we get a, a picture of it in Matthew 4 of just how he did it. Are you familiar with that? Turn over Matthew 4. Let's see it for a second. I want, I want you to see this so you don't miss it and you see the connection here of how we do it. Go to Matthew 4. This is early on in, in uh, Jesus, right before his ministry, and at the end of chapter 3, John, is, or John baptizes uh, Jesus. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and this is like the inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry. And chapter 4 begins, you think, man, he's going to now have this awesome ministry, and he goes into the wilderness. Matthew's uh, showing us this here because Jesus, he's shown that Jesus is greater than Moses. There's some parallels that he's making to Moses' ministry of going into the, into the wilderness, and now Jesus is going as well. And look what happens here. Matthew 4, verse 1. Hopefully you've found it now. Just, just look at it with me and we'll walk through it. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. See the connection to Romans 8 there? Led by the Spirit, all this. Jesus led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Well, if we're wondering why he's going, there's the purpose, right? And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's an understatement, right? Like, yeah, he was for sure hungry. And, 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 like, don't miss this here, right? When are we at our weakest and our worst? When we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, right? Here's Jesus, he's hungry. Probably not angry. At least not sinfully angry, you know? Is he lonely? Yeah, human loneliness. He's got the spirit with him. Is he tired? Maybe. Who knows how much sleep he's getting out in the wilderness? But look there, here's, he's, here's a, a human weakness. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. It's just ludicrous in itself. Like, I don't think the devil even knows who he's talking about here. He's like, hey, you're so hungry. Turn those loaves or those stones into bread and you can eat. And, and like, here's the reality. Jesus doesn't need any stones. He doesn't just like take something like turn it out. Jesus created the universe out of nothing. If he was hungry and he was going to feed himself, he doesn't need rocks to like transform the molecules or anything like that. He'll create molecules out of nothing. He doesn't fight back with any of those things. He doesn't get, go to eat, but he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8. If you haven't read Deuteronomy 8 in a while, put it on your reading list tonight or tomorrow morning. Quotes back. He is fighting against sin and temptation with the Word of God. Showing us even that we, we, we fight back. If God the, the Son is fighting sin, the help of the Holy Spirit equipped with the Word of God, this too should be our tactic. He doesn't just stop there. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And now the tempter is wily, right? He'll twist Scripture to make us uh, think something you know, untrue or about ourselves or about the way the Lord works. He quotes another one on their hands that will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, 
You shall not put the Lord your God to the test again, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the devil goes on. He tries to tempt him again with all the glory of the world. And Jesus is like, you don't even understand who I am because all glory and honor already belongs to me. One day, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord and he doesn't need Satan to give anything to him. Hey church, what's the point we're trying to make here? It comes to Romans 8. We're putting to death the deeds of the body. How do we fight? How does the Spirit equip us? With the Word of God. Jesus Himself showed us how. Who do we think we are to employ any other tactic if this is what God Himself did? Showed Him the way of escape. How else does He equip us? Well, here's the second thing. Go back to Romans 8. Here. He shows us the way out. Gives us the word of God, and he gives us the way of escape. So you look at what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says. Maybe you're familiar with this. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Listen here, just before we even go on, side note, uh, in regards to this, service, uh, this, this passage here, if you're being tempted by something, you are not the only one in the world being tempted by it. Even if the enemy is trying to make you think that you are. And those thoughts like, oh, if they, think, if they hear this about it, they're going to think you're really weird. Like nobody else, you're the only one in the history of the world that has ever struggled with this. You're the only one in your family. You're the only one at this church that does. Don't believe it. No temptation. It's all common. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you might be able to endure it. See, the, the Spirit equips us to fight our sin by saying, you can, you, here's a way out. You can cut it off. You can drive a different way. You can get rid of that device. You can, uh, you can, you, the, here is the exit strategy out of this. A few chapters before this, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, he tells them to flee sexual immorality, to run away, to get rid of it. And see, here's the thing, redemption, is that the great privilege of being in God's family as we come here, being adopted now as we have the Holy Spirit, and we can live this way. That we have the Word of God, and we can obey the Word of God when once we could not. We can now say no. So, see, when sexual temptation does arise, you can now look to the hills. Get where you're going to go to Fisher Park, go wherever. And you can go to the hills. Quote Psalm 121 I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And we flood our mind, we flood our thoughts with the things of God when this temptation comes. When we're driving by something, and it's been a source where we're constantly pulled in. Maybe it's drinking, and you're passing by the store where, you can, where you've constantly gone in to buy things after, after dinner, or after work, so you can have it for dinner, whatever it is. Now you can find a new way home, and you can quote Ephesians 5.18, uh, Therefore do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Praise God that we are motivated, removed by Him. Maybe when you're tempted to boast and to make yourself look better amongst your co-workers or your friends or your things, you can now stay quiet and quote Philippians 2 to have this same mind and do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard others as more important than See, it's the Spirit who brings these verses. It's the Spirit who helps us in these great moments. And what a great legacy. What a great inheritance. What a great privilege of being adopted by God.
But it's not the only privilege, because let's continue on in the passage here. What else is great about it? Well, here's the second one. The Father engulfs us with His presence. See, there's some, like I said, there's Trinitarian involvement here. The Spirit is equipping us to kill sin, but the Father is engulfing us with His presence. In verse 14, look how it says, it begins with that word for, and, and I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, Romans 8 and, and really all the book of Romans uh, begin with these in what's Greek called gar. Uh, gar is just the Greek word for for. These gar clauses that are like stair steps down. We're, we're like getting a, a glimpse as Romans goes on as he's making this argument that's taking us deeper and deeper in to understand the reality, the strength, the uh, just how strong the theology is below all of this. And he's just taking us deeper and deeper in. He says, verse 14, for all, this is connected to verse 13, obviously, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Context of this is what? It's what we've just been talking about, killing sin. This is how the Spirit of God leads us, Okay. We read these verses, and sometimes, what does our mind go to? Maybe you've been taught this way. Maybe you use language like this, of like, well, I'm being led. I'm feeling led to do something like this. It's, I'm waiting for the Spirit's leading in this way. This is not necessarily what he's talking about. We are led, we are sons of God, when we are saying no to sin. Right? We're being led here because we are in the Father's presence, which is going to make us express some things which are getting there here. But what he's talking about is how God is leading us this way, not in the subjective feeling like, well, I feel, I'm feeling led to marry that person. When she's like, yeah, no, 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 you're not. I'm feeling led to go to the school. I'm feeling led to get out of this marriage. I'm feeling led to go get out of this job. I'm feeling led to buy this home. Like, time out, time out, time out. Let's be careful of how we use verses, how we use language and things here. The being led here by the Spirit is specifically in saying no to sin. If you're feeling led to say no to sin and battle it and kill it and cut it off, then, then that's being led. Now there is an aspect that God is giving us wisdom as we make those choices to honor Him as we're living in His will. Right? We've talked about that time and time again. We're saved, we're sanctified, we're sexually pure, we're willing to suffer, we're submitting to the authorities in our life, we're, we're filled with gratitude and joy and prayer. These are the things that are the will of God. Just do that study. And when we do that, when we are walking according to the will of God, we are then led by God in the things that we have. Our desires are His desires, and He is leading us in that way. That happens when we are in His family. We've been saved. We're sanctified. Where we no longer live in fear, but now in the affection of the Father, in the affection that comes from His presence. And so look, look at how, how he's continuing. He says, You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons... Here And so what's he saying? Like, you've been now brought into the family, and you don't have to fear, okay? You, didn't, you haven't been given this. The Spirit here, it's, it's being used in a different sense, not like the Holy Spirit, not like our internal spirit, but like the spirit of somebody, like the spirit of my grandfather lives on, the, the legacy and the inheritance that you've begun with. You don't have now in God's family this fear that comes with being a slave to a wicked, uh, a mean master, where you're constantly cowering because of like, am I, am I going to upset him? See, the great freedom and the great liberty of living in God's family here. No, we are his sons. He is an affectionate, benevolent, kind, and good father. Not a wicked, mean slave owner. 
This is how we live, in his presence, in his nearness, with him that makes us want to cry out to him. Cry out, these affectionate terms here that cry, Abba, that's just the affectionate word for like daddy, or as my kids call me, dada. I like to think savvy, she's learning words are soon to be one-year-old, and really she says dada for everything. She kind of says it as a pejorative, as, you know, affectionate, dada, you know, dada, dada, you know. This week our two older kids were out at camp, and a few days she wasn't feeling super well, but I would come home from work, and she'd be crawling around, and Aaron was, you know, doing something or whatever, and I, Savannah, and she, you know, she's crawling around, so she, you know, scooting around our house, and You'd see me and smile and cry out and da 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 da. Kids still call me that, although the older ones, when I come home, they're just kind of like, "What's up, Dad?" You know. But is this when God is near? When we understand who He is, being brought into His family, He is an affectionate Father that we cry out, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in us dwelling in us, testifies within us that we just know, we know it, right? Where we cry out this affection, we kill sin because we don't want it. We know this is what, what separates us from the love and affection of the Father, and so we don't want it. So we cry out. He's bearing witness here, and maybe, maybe this is where you're at today. Maybe you need to remember whose you are today and what family you belong to. Because of what Christ has done, you've repented of your sin. You believe in Christ. But today, you're not rejected. You're not. Haven't been abandoned. There's no reason to fear. There's no no reason to be anxious. You are accepted and loved and forgiven. Don't, don't give way to the fearful thoughts on this. You are a child of God. His beloved son or daughter. And this is what he's getting at here. And, and let's just be real clear on this, this concept of child of God because sometimes it gets misconstrued. And you'll hear this from like, you know, big theological types or whatever, or think people on, on, on radio or whatever, whether they're kind of religious or whatever, they'll say things like, oh, well, we're all God's children, aren't we? No, we're not. All humanity are not God's children. This is a specific reference to the saved. This is a specific reference for those that God has set His love on, who have repented of their sin and are now saved and trusting in Christ whom He loves. Yes, they're, they're, to be technical, all humans are created in the image of God, right? Yes, yes. We are all created in the image of God. Every person that you see, every person that, you, uh, that looks different than you, every person here is created in the image of God. Man, woman, child, all that. doesn't matter the ethnicity. Every person is. And therefore, every human has dignity and worth. Right? Yes. Every person has dignity and worth and should be treated as such. Create love and care and affection and all that. But we can't hijack the idea and, and the glory of being called a son or daughter of God to mean that when there's, there's some glory and there's dignity and there's a greatness in that, but for being saved. God's salvific love for His children. You need to understand that today. If you're in Christ, 
this special love is yours today. If you, if the, those voices of like disappointment or doubt or distress or depression or denial are loud in your ears, let the Spirit bring to bear on your spirit today that you belong to God. You can say no to that sin. He will carry you through it. He has a purpose through it all, especially when it is hard. Which is what he's bringing us to in verse 17. There's kind of this final privilege here in verse, verse 17 of our, of our adoption here is that the Son empowers us to embrace our suffering. But the, the, write that down as the third and final privilege here. The Son empowers us to embrace our suffering. The, the Father engulfs us with His presence. He is near. His affection is, is so real that it leads us and it, and it provokes us to cry out, Abba, Father. But then even so, in the hard times, the Son is whom empowers us to embrace our suffering. See, we have an inheritance with Him. That's what He's getting at in verse 17. He's saying, you're children of God, but not just children. Heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. See, church, look here for a moment. Who is the only rightful heir to the things of God? Jesus. The, the Son of God. The one, the, the one who lived the perfect life. His very own Son. The firstborn. The only begotten Son. Not that He was like, uh, uh, you know, born just as a human. He's distinct and fully God as well here. But the whole point of really like even John's Gospel is to prove this. Here that Jesus is the rightful heir. That He and the Father are one. And the mind-blowing truth of a verse like this. And as we think about our adoption as a son or daughter of God. Is that Jesus shares is inheritance with us. But what is the inheritance? Okay? You know, to the Jew, if you ask them that question, and reading through it, the, the Jewish person, they'd be like, well, our inheritance is the land. This is what God promised to the Jewish people. This is why they occupy it today. And, We'll continue into the millennial kingdom, but it, it's, it's a very real promise. This was their inheritance. But it's not just in the physical aspect of the land here. There's spiritual significance to the land here because that is where God promised to meet with them, to dwell with them. It was a special land because God promised, I will meet with you here on this mountain, in this location, was the, was the spiritual significance of that. And Israel would have to fight. They would have to suffer to keep it. So too we as God's children grafted into this faith that we share with Him while we await the glory that is referred to here and will be expounded upon next Sunday. The not yet reality of our salvation. As we wait this glory, the end game of our inheritance, forever in His presence with glorified bodies, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering. In the meantime, we embrace the fight. Namely, the suffering against and because of sin. That's what he's talking about here. The suffering because of and against the sin in our life. Christ himself suffered to show us how. Christ experienced this on this earth, this suffering, the betrayal of, of his uh, closest friends. Obviously, the suffering that happened on the Calvary for our sin. 
We know this, even though we don't always embrace it. That's why the Son helps us do that, but our suffering is a gift. A gift that refines us and sanctifies us and purifies us. Remember Philippians 1? Philippians 1.29, I'll just read it for you and see if it rings any bells from when we were in this, or maybe you've read it before. He says this, For it has been granted or gifted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him. Like we're like, yeah, it's, our salvation is a gift from God, right? Amen. But also, Philippians 1.29 goes on, to suffer for His sake. Oh. Like that's a gift you can keep, right? Not so fast. It's engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. This is Paul, the apostle speaking, the one who wrote it to the church in Philippi. The same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Your suffering is a gift for what is it is producing in us, a greater hope and anticipation for glory. It's helping us to fight our sin and to put it off. But the, the reality is, and what he's bringing us here, praise God, that we don't do it alone. That we're not suffering on our own, back in some corner, away from everybody else, but the joy of being in this family, what he's bringing us to here in 8.17 of Romans, is that we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Word of God, we have the example of Christ, and we have one another. We have all we need for life and godliness here. Paul's saying, you saw I had it. I, he suffered there. But look around the church here. You have brothers and sisters in the same spot as you. Their suffering they may be different. How they're tempted is a little bit different. How, where they're at in their spiritual maturity may be different. But the reality is the joy and the great privilege of being in the family is that we have these things to help us. The help and care and support and the love is one of the greatest privileges of being adopted into his family. We have a new identity. We have a new legacy. We have a new inheritance. We have a new trajectory in our life where once we had Adam and all the sin and corruption and death that were true of us, we now have Christ. His inheritance, His legacy was graciously shared us with us all that the Father has given Him. His love is our reward. His presence is now our inheritance. There's no greater family we could find. No greater adoption that we could, uh, uh, or no greater privileges that we could be adopted into. The beauty of God's design in this is that no matter what our biological inheritance is, no matter what our familial legacy is, God brings it all together under uh, the family of God here, where these privileges that we've just discussed now, we now share together. All of us growing and progressing and learning what it means to belong to God's family and doing it together to the praise and glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's praise God for that and pray together now. God in heaven, here we are. You are our Father. And we need your help in these things. Lord, even as we've seen these things, Lord, we just uh, ask even right now for help in fighting against our sin. Not just fighting it, but putting it to death. Help us, God, do that. For a brother or sister here who is in the, 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 the throes of warfare right now, would you help him put it to death? 
for those that are walking through a season of suffering. Maybe it's because of their own sin or their own decisions or uh, because something that's happened to them or beyond their control or just feeling the corruption of these bodies and the decay and old age and whatever it might be. God, would you give us more of yourself? Lord, for those who are wondering, is it worth it? Is following you, is becoming part of your family worth it? Would you convince them in their heart and mind today that there is nothing greater? Being saved is the best. There's no other way of living even comes close to what following you is. Convince them of that. Would turn from their sin, follow you, even right now. We love you, Lord. Thank you. Pray these things now. In the name of Christ. Amen.